Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And in this episode, we are talking to the brilliant Sally Hughes, beauty editor with The Guardian, podcaster and author of a fantastic book of life lessons called Everything is Washable. Because that's what I think women are for, right, to each other. You're constantly sharing intel, aren't you? You're constantly sharing tips and I love that. If this book gets hundreds of women to get in touch to say, I am absolutely here for it. That just makes me so, so, so happy. The kind of circular economy of female wisdom I'm very much here for. But before we get to Sally Hughes, I wanted to mention Ashling Murphy, who was killed exactly one year ago today while going for a run near her home in Tullamore, County Offaly. That happened, uh, as you all know, on the 12th of January last year. A mass is going to take place this evening to mark the first anniversary of her death. And in a statement posted on social media last weekend, the Murphy family thanked people for their endless support over the last 12 months. It read, The endless support received from many individuals, groups and organisations that Ashling was strongly a part of during her short 23 years was truly amazing. The family said a memorial fund has now been set up to honour the legacy of Ashling, whose life touched so many people. The fund's main objective is the further enhancement, development and the advancements of the traditional Irish arts, culture and heritage for young people. And all donations and proceeds from fundraisers will be used to achieve objectives which are deemed close to Ashling's heart and represent the many interests she had in her 23 years. Ashling was fully committed to everything she put her hand to. She was highly motivated and always believed in following her dreams. The statement added, Ashling's parents, Raymond and Kathleen, are so grateful to everyone who continues to remember Ashling for who she really was by carrying on the great legacies she left behind. Ashling's name will live on forever, the statement said. And just to say as well, the Murphy family have appealed for privacy as they continue to grieve their terrible loss of their daughter, their sister, friend. And we're thinking of them and we're thinking of Ashling's many friends and family and her partner at this very sad time. Now, some people seem to be born knowing how to do those adult things like make a risotto, hang a picture frame and mingle at a party. The rest of us muddle through or tend to ask our wiser friends for advice. And Guardian Beauty editor Sally Hughes is one of the wisest and funniest people. So it's great that she has written a book full of all her accumulated knowledge from how to fix a really good martini, how to pack for festivals and why we all need a Swiss army knife. 
everything is washable and other life lessons. Answers questions such as how do we stop buying jeans that don't fit? Is it possible to have a productive and respectful conversation with your partner about finances? Are bad boys worth the hassle? It's basically a smart new Bible for living in the modern world, offering practical tips for everything from boosting mental health and stocking the kitchen cupboards to supporting friends through tough times. The book is a follow-up to her 2016 book, Pretty Iconic, a personal look at the beauty products that changed the world. And Sally also has a new podcast called Beyond the Bathroom. She also co-founded the award-winning UK charity Beauty Banks, which supports people living in hygiene poverty, and she does amazing work with them. Recently, Sally formulated a quality, budget-friendly skincare range for Revolution Beauty, which is available in Ireland in Boots and Superdrug. She is 47 from Carefilly in Wales. She's a fluent Welsh speaker who ran away to to London when she was just 14 and blagged herself a job with the makeup artist Lynn Easton which led to working on photo shoots with the likes of Boy George and the Pet Shop Boys before getting into journalism and she is a wonderful writer. I had such great fun chatting to Sally in a conversation that took in Botox, drunk texting, how to boil an egg, how to talk to your children about porn and the evils of white wine but I began by asking her why she wrote this brilliant brilliant book in the first place well first of all I needed to write another book I hadn't written one in a little while and you know your publishers are on your back and your agents are on your back and I was adamant I didn't want to write another beauty book at the moment I just didn't want to um I wanted to write something that was a bit more reflective of my entire job not just one column within my job so I wanted it to be a bit more general um, and it was, it kind of came to me via my friends, really. I think every friendship group has got somebody in it who's like the person that everyone asks how to do something. And I think for lots of my friends, I'm that person. My friend uh, Lucy Mangan, who's in the um, dedication page or the acknowledgement page, it sends me about 20 questions every single week. I mean, constantly. And I love it because it keeps my brain kind of agile. It keeps me on my game. But she's constantly uh, emailing me and messaging me asking, you know, I, I need a backpack that doesn't make me look like a student, must fit a laptop and several books. And I just have to then send her about 10 links, you know, or people will text me and say, oh, next time you make a risotto, will you film it and send it to me? That's my friend Nicola. And so um, I just am that kind of person where I'm I'm the person who's very often telling you how to do things and how to dispense advice. So I thought... Well, maybe if I combine those two things, my uh, general interest women's uh, journalism with all the questions my friends ask me, then that might be a book. So I opened a Facebook group, a private Facebook group of my friends and said, what do you want to know how to do? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not that person in my, in my friendship group, but I know exactly the kind of people that you're talking about. And I suppose you've a few different ones as well for different areas, but you are an all uh, one sh- one stop shop for all of these things because you cover so many areas um, like from home to fashion to health to obviously beauty. But what do you think it is that um, made you that person? What, what Where do you think you got that ability to kind of know so much about so many different things? Well, I mean, first of all, I would say I do I do know my strengths and I ignore my weaknesses. So not everything is in this book. Like you won't find out how to change a tire in this book because I don't know how to change a tire. And I think when it when it came to putting things in the book, my criteria was always why me and why not YouTube? So 
if I felt that if I didn't know how to do something already, all I was going to do was go off to YouTube and find out how to do it. In which case, what's the point of putting it in the book? Somebody might as well look on YouTube than themselves. So it only went in if I already knew how to do it. Um, if I'd learned the hard way, maybe once I didn't know how to do it and had got it terribly wrong or had always been able to do it, then it was able to go in. And I suppose that covers a fair bit because... I've been on my own since I was really, really young. I left home, I ran away from home when I was a teenager. And I was on my own. I've never, ever, ever been one of those people who has that kind of infrastructure where you think, oh, well, if something goes wrong, I'll call my mother. Or if something goes wrong, my parents will help me or my dad will come and change my tyre or, you know, whatever it is. I've never had that. And so I just had to learn things along the way. And, you know, all of us in the family can cook, for example, because we didn't, you know, our parents didn't cook for us. So we get, you know, we can all cook because we would cook for ourselves, cook for each other. Um, and it's just things like that that I've picked up along the way. But I do understand that readers shouldn't have to know that, you know, the insides and outs of it to, when they're reading the book. But there were some parts of the book where I thought, well, a reader hasn't heard me write much about interiors before. And I feel like I have to kind of explain why I have a viewpoint on this and why I'm not just filling pages and um, I'm obsessed absolutely obsessed with my house because um, I lived in a really 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 scruffy one and um, because my dad was a hoarder my dad kept everything you know and he had um, he had a drink problem and our house is full of junk and I didn't have a home for a very, very, very long time. And so when I did, it just became my be all and end all and still is. And so that's why I'm obsessed with creating a kind of cosy, calm, pleasing to the eye environment, because I just didn't grow up in one and I didn't have one of my own for what felt like forever. Yeah. I mean, the book opens with the section on home and you tell that very poignant story about about your dad and about his difficulties and going back to your childhood home. And you say that you fetishize uh, domesticity, which is a lovely way of putting it. And then what follows is really I found it so um, I mean, I, I feel like I've sort of mixed feelings reading the book because I feel like I wish I'd read this book 30 years ago, that it would have saved me a lot of hassle and trouble and, you know, uh, doing the wrong things. But I'm going to give it to all my nieces and nephews because for that very reason but um there was things in it like you know immediately I, I i ordered something off amazon within a few pages now a cheap what thing. did you get well you talked about curtains right i don't have curtains on a room at the moment and um, i can't use the room it was it's a room going to be for a bedroom and you just talked about these paper uh, disposable replacement blinds that you can use when you don't oh. have curtains on your window so i didn't know about they're them so they're so good right we've all done it we've all moved into a flat or a house and there's no curtains curtains and you just sit there like you're in a goldfish bowl for months until you can afford curtains or till you get around to making them right so what you need to do you need to go onto amazon or some kind of hardware shop online and you get these pieces of paper and they concertina down and they've got adhesive backs at the top and you stick them on the top of the window and you're golden until you get your curtains so you can do whatever you like behind there. You can get yourself a full pint of ice cream from the freezer and sit in the window and nobody's going to see you. Um, and they're, they're dead cheap and you can put them in recycling when you get your curtains. I know. And they're winging their way to me as we speak. I'm getting them tomorrow. And you've really, you've really fixed it as something that was kind of bothering me. I was planning on nailing up a sheet. This is my next uh, idea in my head, you know, which is a stupid thing to do. 
That's what students do, isn't it? You know you're in a student neighbourhood when you see your kind of, you know, your throw, your orange IKEA throw pinned up against a window. Yeah. And you think, well, there's, there's students in there who can't be bothered to get curtains. But yeah, this way is much easier. Yeah. So that's one thing off my list and, and many other things in the book as well that you've helped me with. But you, you talk about the fact that your religion almost is cosiness. And this is the key thing in your home. So talk to me a bit about why cosiness is so important to you and why it should be for everybody, really. That's the kind of key bit of a home, isn't it? I am a homebody. There's no two ways about it. My husband is too. I love being at home. There's nobody, nowhere in the world I'd rather be than in my bed or on the sofa. Um, I don't get to do it enough because I work a lot. And so when I'm home, I want it to be exactly right. And I'm worried that this conversation and the beginning of my, my book makes it sound like I'm a bit of a frantic cushion plumper, you know, that I'm constantly shaking cushions and yet I live in a house where you can't put things down and it looks like a museum. It's the opposite. It's nothing like that. Nothing like that. It's full of vintage furniture and old blankets belonging to my grandmother. And, and it's definitely a house where you can kick off your shoes if you want, of course, and slouch down. And that is when I feel comfortable, when people around me look comfortable. I'm somebody who gets a bit stressed if I've got someone in my house who won't open the fridge and get themselves something out the fridge. I, I want the kind of house that invites you to interact with it, that you can you feel like you can pick up a book off the table and read it if you want. You can go and make yourself a cup of tea if I'm not in the room. You can just help yourself to things. And that's that's really important to me that my house is as cosy for me as for everyone else so literally every piece of furniture in my house has to operate as a bed or I get a bit stressed by that. yes there's a section that says everything is, <laughs> can be it should be a bed explain that because I do love that as well I'm, I'm fully subscribed so I'm I'm somebody who will never ever ever make anybody go home I'll always find them a space to fall asleep if they've had too many to drink or they just feel like carrying on the conversation. I always want them to think, oh, it's fine. Sal, find somewhere for me to sleep and I will. And even if it's like sometimes, it's not like I live in some enormous house, but I've had, you know, 12 people, 13, 14 people actually one year for Brighton Pride staying in my house. And I will find a way. And part of that is making sure that every Sofa is wide enough to accommodate someone's back, that they're not kind of being tipped off the side, that there's blankets everywhere, that there's not too much stuff on the floor so you can get a blow up mattress if you have to, that everything is kind of soft and cushiony, that at any point in the day you can curl up with a book and nod off. I mean, that's a state of grace, isn't it? Curling up and nodding off with a book. Oh, there's nothing better. It's it's amazing. And then let's move on to fashion because there's a lot about clothes in it, but really useful things again, because you mentioned having a lot of vintage furniture and there's one thing that says have something old in every room, which I think is a really brilliant reminder that we don't always think about. We're often we go on um, online and we find all the stuff from DFS or the new things when actually in our local area, uh, there's little shops that might sell exactly what we need and things that have a, have a story. So similarly with clothes, you're a big fan of, of, of reusing you know going to secondhand shops and also you know finding thrifty uh fashionable choices like i would say about uh 50 of my wardrobe is secondhand and that doesn't mean it's all kind of you know stuff that your nan might have worn although i do have those bits too i just mean that somebody else owned them before because the amount of money you save is huge and it takes a little bit of practice but it quickly becomes a hobby 
And what happens is you basically get to step up a category if you go secondhand. So if you want to spend high street money, you get quite posh high street clothes. If you want to spend posh high street money, you get designer clothes. You know, you basically get to pay for a category, a cheaper category and get something posher. Um, and it's more creative. It's more unique. I tend not to turn up at a wedding and find myself wearing the same dress as three other people, which, you know, happens, doesn't it? Yeah. When you're at that kind of thing. Um, you save an absolute fortune. I spent hours and hours on eBay and Vestia Collective and Vinted and those sorts of places. And over the years, I mean, I, I can't imagine how much money I've saved. I've had coats that were still in the shops for two and a half thousand pounds that I've paid 200 pounds for. Dresses that were 50 pounds in the shops that I've got for seven or eight pounds. I've, I've done it for years and years and years. And I do think it adds a kind of depth and a, a personality to your wardrobe and to your house. I think it adds even more than that, the quality of older furniture, the quality of something cheap that your nan might have owned is so much better than something quite expensive that you might buy now, new, because the quality of manufacturing was just better back then. And I just think, as you said before, I think if you walk into a room and there's something, at least one thing in it that's old, it just gives a bit of soul to a room and stops it looking like a show home. Now, everyone would expect you to go and share lots of beauty things because we know you for that. So there is quite a lot um, on, you know, skincare routines and all of that. But you also talk about Botox, which is something I wanted to ask you about, because it's still kind of controversial. Some people not, um, you know, fans of it, but you are very much an advocate, but you're very much an advocate of doing it properly and doing it the right way. So tell us a bit about that. Um, honestly, I just think people need to absolutely get over themselves, over Botox. I have to say, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm on the Irish Times podcast, and this is quite relevant, I think. I'm from Wales. I don't think Irish women and Welsh women have got a problem here, I have to say. By and large, when I come to Ireland, women will just talk to each other about whatever's going on, right? But in... And the same is in Wales. My friends in Wales go and get their Botox, and they text each other to come around and look at it, right? <laughs> So this is not a problem for some parts of the world. However, I would say there is a very middle class English problem where women um, treat Botox. They either look down their nose and sneer at women who get it or they get it themselves and they lie about it. And I think neither things are helpful or friendly or kind to women. So, so, so many people get Botox now. If Botox had existed 100 years ago, men and women would be getting it then as well. Um, if you do it safely and properly with a reputable practitioner and you really do your due diligence, why not? This idea that it's some sort of terrible failing and letting the side down is just absolutely absurd. I don't see people with highlights or teeth whitening. Um, or hair dyeing out their greys getting into trouble. But for some reason, there's this very kind of sneering weirdness about Botox. And so I thought I wanted to write about that. I've never, ever, ever uh, denied or lied about the fact that I get Botox. And I just thought, um, I just want to put it in print and kind of give anybody who's worried about it printed permission to just do what they want with their own face and to tell people to get over themselves. And, uh, you know, as I say, I come to Ireland and there's just this 
you know, I come to Ireland fairly often, as you know, very often you and I might have drinks or, or whatever. And there's something about Irish women that is so, so, so similar to Welsh women, where there's there's a joy. There's an, there, there is an open joy in getting ready, in looking nice in caring about your appearance, in putting on your war paint, glamming up, going out and having a good time. And that's what I'm used to where I come from. But what you see in kind of, you know, in well-heeled parts of London or whatever, is people who somehow think that that gets in the way of them appearing intelligent or or cultured or engaged or they they worry it betrays them as being vain or silly or money to burn and all of that stuff. And I just think it's so, so, so silly. Yeah. And what about the argument where people feel it's not feminist to do that? You know, you should be able to just let your skin become what it's going to be in age in the way that nature intended. What's your response to that? Well, personally, I find that weird. I love defying nature. That's why I don't have babies when I don't want to have babies. That's why I take antibiotics when I've got some kind of bacterial infection. I defy nature all the time. Hooray for defying nature. That is what allows us to live life as we do as feminists. So this idea that you must be natural to be feminist is ridiculous. Otherwise, we'd all have 20 babies, right? So the thing about Botox being unfeminist, to me, the most unfeminist thing is telling women how to look. And if you tell women how to look or how they should live their lives, whether that is that they must be wrinkle free or they must have wrinkles, neither is helpful. I don't think a prescriptive a prescriptive approach to what women should do with their lives is good. The moment I hear women should, I'm out. I'm just like, oh, go away. Like my interest is lost when I start hearing about what women should do. Do get Botox, don't get Botox. I honestly don't care. I think that people need to stop telling women what they should do or not do with their faces. Well, I just, I think that's the spirit of your whole book, Sally, actually, because it's it's really the number of times that you say in the book, you should do what you like. You know, no, no, but you're not, you aren't, you are, in some ways you're giving lots of information and lots of help and lots of advice, but you're also saying at the end of the day, this is your choice. This is what, what you should do. Was that important to you as you compiled all these tips and, and advice? I mean, it's it's honestly just how I am. When I um, I go to events, very often if I'm doing a book event or an event with a brand or something, very often women, you know, they'll queue up to get their book signed or whatever it is. And they'll get to the front and they'll say, oh, don't, don't look at me. Don't look at me. My makeup's terrible. I wanted it to be nice to meet you. And it's just terrible. Don't look at me. And that, by the way, is an Irish and Welsh woman thing. That is what <laughs> Irish and Welsh women do. They'd be the first to not take a compliment, right? So they'll go, oh, don't look at me. And I say, why, why, why would you say that? What do you think I'm like? I'm not like that. I wouldn't, I would never look at somebody and pick holes in their appearance like that. It just doesn't occur to me. I'm just happy to see a friendly face with an interesting voice and, and I'm here for that. And I'm really not very judgmental. And for the most part, I want to, people to just have the tools to do what they want. And it doesn't do for us all to be the same. I don't want everyone to look the same. I don't want everyone to live in the same house and do the same things. I just wanted to write a book where if you wanted to know how to do something or if you wanted to be validated, I suppose, and then to be helped along the way, then you could turn to me. I think essentially whatever you do, if it doesn't hurt anybody else, then crack on.
Crack on, exactly. Let's go through some of the things you mentioned there um, when somebody gives a compliment. There's, there's such great advice in this book. And one of the things is how to take a compliment. And I think you need to tell all our listeners, because I think a lot of our listeners, being Irish women, don't know how to take a compliment. So tell us about that. I mean, Irish women are dreadful, aren't they? At this, They're so, 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 so bad at this. And our mutual friend Tara has obviously written about this at length. So um, you must read Tara Flynn's book about this. So funny. But it's this thing where, and we all do it. Somebody says, oh, Rasheen, you look nice. Oh, but look at this spot on my chin, though. It will not budge. I've had it three weeks. It will not go. And actually, whoever's paying you a compliment has moved on by then. You know, they, they, they think you look nice. They say the nice thing. And all you have to say is, thanks very much. And I think, you know, compliments are like medicine. You might not like the taste of them, but they do work. And you have to take them in. You have to say thank you because it's rude to reject someone's compliment. You know, oh, I don't. I look terrible. Oh, I'm not sleeping at the moment. Or, oh, it's just from Primark or, you know, whatever it is that you say to people. You're basically throwing back their compliment, their lovely gift at them. And actually, the polite thing to do is to say thanks for saying that. That's really, really nice. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now, you're very down on white wine. I'm just going to go randomly through some of the things that jumped out at me. I love <laughs> you're saying white wine is the is the sort of bad alcohol in a way, like, you know, the one that really gets people very drunk very quickly. And you're kind of you have some salutary words about it. Oh, my God, Rasheen, white wine is the devil, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. But I can't have any more than two glasses before I'm a madman. And I can drink anything else. I like drinking. You know, I do. I, I like drinking. I don't get hammered, but, you know, I like drinking. But white wine is the beginning of the end for me, and I have to pull it back. There's a bit in the book where I describe the moment, you know, the moment when, you know, you're on the cusp of being drunk and you've just got to pull it back or know that you're absolutely safe to carry on, of course, if you want to carry on. But that's where I pull it back. And it happens sooner with white wine. You know, my my friend John always said, you know, red wine, jolly chats with friends, white wine, calling your ex and saying something terrible into a voicemail. That like <laughs> the difference is they are Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, when speaking of uh, drinking and communicating with people, you have very funny stories about drunk texting, Sally. I had to, I oh, had to put the book God. down and laugh my head off. Can you tell us your own experiences? You've two very good ones of of drunk texting and why nobody should ever do it. 
Okay, so I know the two you're talking about. I haven't read that bit since I wrote it, but I know the two you're talking about. because they, Yeah, they are imprinted on my brain and searing through every cell every day of my life. So uh, my ex-husband, when we first met and you're in those throes of, you know, passion, you're mad about each other and we were on a boat party and um, going up and down the Thames and we were sending each other not saucy but very emotional sort of texts um, and had been all day and I sent him a text you know that was kind of essentially declaring my undying love and desire for him and um, sent it to my boss who Who was also at the party who was also on the boat and basically said uh we we don't have that kind of relationship so I was like no we don't it was meant for my boyfriend. Almost died a death because I was drunk. Because I was drunk. And then another time I had read a book about sociopathy and narcissism and decided that there was a member of my family who was definitely 100% a sociopath and a narcissist. A narcissist at the absolute least. And I texted my brother to say, oh my goodness I've just read this but you know who's a sociopath and narcissist and of course I sent it to the person not my brother so yeah those two examples are absolutely horrifying both times white wine was involved and you just have to you have to know your drink you know my my eldest son now has started drinking because he's of age and going to teenage parties you know we had to sit down and I had to say look I can't stop you drinking I know you're going to get drunk that's what 18 year olds do However, you need to find your drink and you need to work out what your poison is because everyone's got something, right? Everyone's got something where you look back and you think, oh, my God, perno, never again. And unfortunately, you have to find out the hard way, don't you, what your kryptonite is. Yeah. And you've two sons now. They're both teenagers. They're both of age they're now? Both, yes, they're both teenagers. One's at school, one's at college. You talk very well in the book about the importance of talking to your sons about porn and about sex, which can be very difficult for a lot of people. And I I thought it would be great if you could talk a bit about that for our listeners who have sons and are, you know, wondering how to broach those subjects, because you're very open about it and you're very adamant about how important it is for their, you know, development and education. I think it's so, so hard now, right? It's so difficult because... Our kids' generation are learning how to have sex from pornography. Now, there are many problems about that that you could discuss over a whole series of podcasts, I know. But in the short term, the immediate worry for me as a mother is, and for all of us of our generation, is that sex is not like that. It's not like that. So the sex that they are watching and accessing that you just can't stop from happening, they're only ever two clicks away from this stuff, Uh, the sex that they're watching has nothing to do with the sex they're going to have. And you have to try and marry those two things together. You have to try and make some peace between those two things and manage your kids' expectations. Particularly, well, not even particularly if you have a boy, because you need to let your girls know that they don't have to do this stuff, right? So I just would hear horror stories from people about, you know, choking and... And all this kind of stuff, which I never, ever encountered when I was growing up. And I thought, I can't have my kids being involved in thinking this is good and normal. And the other thing is that 
I think we talk a lot about the the negative and scary impact that pornography has on girls, but it's scary for boys. You're, you know, there are nine year olds accessing porn. That must be terrifying for them. It must be discombobulating, worrying, all of that stuff. And so I think you have to talk about sex from the very beginning. And I'm not saying you sit down with a four year old and explain how sex works. I'm saying you just have it in the air, right? You know, you just have open conversation in the air. And then when they're old enough to have a little bit more of a, a grown up conversation about it, I, th- I think you have to I think you have to come out and say it. You know, m- most women you encounter will have pubic hair. Most women won't have silicon boobs. You know, most women's boobs will move about. They'll move about when they're lying down, when they're standing up. Um, most women, their expectation will be when they go to bed with someone that they will have vaginal sex. That That is basic stuff. And all the stuff they see um, in pornography is not really how it's going to go. And I don't know how explicit I can be in the Irish Times you podcast. You can be very explicit. I think most people would agree, most adults would agree that the most creative, more imaginative, more less vanilla kind of sex you have in your life tends to come from relationships, right? Where you really trust each other, not from casual things where you're suddenly doing all these sorts of gymnastics and, you know, and and fetishes and crazy stuff if anything like that's going to come out it's going to come out within the confines of a trusting loving mutually respectful relationship you know the most different sex most people are ever going to have in their lives is with someone they love right and not and not with some random and so I think that's mainly true of most people and so I just I wanted to get that across to my kids because my worst nightmare was that they would end up with girls, you know, or boys, and behave in a way that let them down, let me down, but most of all hurt someone else. And so I think you have to bite the bullet, however embarrassing it is, and say this stuff that you are surrounded with all the time is not normal. It's not normal, and girls have periods, and they have hair, and they have real boobs most of the time, and more importantly than anything, they have autonomy and consent, and don't you dare ever, ever, ever take it upon yourself uh, to do anything that somebody hasn't consented to. And, I mean, my poor kids, bless them. I mean, they, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they told me, one of my kids told me one time about a, a, a kid that he couldn't stand, had sent a load of his friends some nudes, that a teenage girl had sent him and I said oh my god don't you ever 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 ask a girl for nudes unsolicited and don't you ever however that's happened send them to your friends and he was like mum oh my god that's totes massage raise them well Sally raise them well <laughs> And I was horrified. I was like, oh, God, they must think I just think they're terrible people. And I don't. But that's how you make sure. Yeah, I think you just have to talk and talk and talk and talk, whether you've got girls or boys. And it's uncomfortable. That's not a generation we're from. Right. I didn't have those conversations with my parents. But the world has changed and and we need to send good kids out into the world to be good adults. Let's go back to food, a very different subject. But you mentioned earlier about kind of 
having to learn how to sort of fend for yourself, cook for yourself and all of that. It's it's really popular part of the book, I think, where you're telling people things like how to boil an egg even and uh, fr- how to make the perfect fried egg. And I'm going to argue with you there about the boiled egg because you know what I've discovered is steaming eggs, right? An inch of water. Oh. Listen to this, Sally, honestly, a game changer because I was having problems with boiled eggs where I was like, sometimes it'd be five minutes, sometimes it was seven minutes and it was driving me mad. Sometimes it was, wouldn't cook the way I like it. An inch of water... You put the egg in, you put a lid on and seven minutes steaming. You don't need to put loads of water in for a boiled egg and it works. I found it in the Are New you York putting, Times. So you're putting, you're putting um, boiling water yeah, but like in the that pan. Much. Yeah, boiling water, a very small amount. And then the egg in, lid on, seven minutes and it's the perfect egg every single time, steaming. But this is what I love, you see. So I, um, I did an event for this book in London with my best friend, Catelyn. And after the event, people were coming to get their books signed and a woman had got her copy early. She was from Australia. She got her copy early and she came to the front of the queue and she said, um, absolutely love this book, but I need to add some things to your jet lag bit because I travel from Australia to London all the time, which of course I don't, right? And I love, I love that. It's not, you know, your bald egg thing. I'm literally going to do it tomorrow. I know. Because <laughs> because that's what I think women are for, right, to each other. You're constantly sharing intel, aren't you? You're constantly sharing tips. And I love that. If this book gets hundreds of women to get in touch to say, oh, actually, do you know what? I think I've got a better way of doing that than you. I am absolutely here for it. That just makes me so, so, so happy. The kind of circular economy of female wisdom I'm very much here for. So I'm all over your eggs and I'm going to report back. But you know what you can help me with and did help me with, I'm going to try it, haven't tried it yet, is risotto. It's something I don't go near because I just think, no, too painful. So tell, tell everybody that risotto doesn't have to be something to be scared of. Risotto is the easiest, easiest thing in the world. But what it does demand is your time. You just have to stand there. So you need to put a podcast on. You need to do something to soothe you because it is the most simple cook. But it's it's going to take you half an hour and you can't move. So put a podcast on and all you have to do is once you fried the rice, the onions, the garlic and all of that kind of stuff, um, you just have to put a ladle of stock in you stir, you wait for that ladle to be fully absorbed, then you add another ladle. Same again, then another ladle. And ladle by ladle over half an hour, all the rice, um, all the stock will be absorbed by the rice and you'll end up with an absolutely delicious risotto. It demands nothing from you but time. And you just can't walk away. And I think what people try to do is they try and slosh a pint in and think, oh, well, it's all the same. But no, you have to do it ladle by ladle or else you get unevenly cooked risotto with hard bits and soggy bits. Uh, so yeah, the recipe's in there and I show you how to adapt it to any flavour of risotto, you know, whether it's mushroom or classic Milanese or whatever it is. And um, the method is always exactly the same. You just need to stay with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, these are again, life changing uh, tips, I find. I mean, you know, you talk about that circular economy of information. It's like, it, these are important things. I know it's just risotto or it's just, you know, moisturizer or it's just whatever but these are the daily things of our lives that can improve and lift our mood and make things better so they're they're important they're not trivial yeah and it's where good conversations come from isn't it you know you talk about I'd always rather talk about food than anything because it always just leads it leads people to access memories to talk about their experiences it's social you know, you have intimate conversations over lunch with your pals, don't you? You know, you end up going anywhere. You'll talk about, you know, grief and love and sex and family and work and all of that stuff. And 
food is where all the good stuff happens. And that kind of domesticity, I think women are just so overstretched now, you know, women with small children very often, because we're having kids later, very often a woman can be at the peak of her career, have school-aged children and be menopausal all at the same time. And women are so, so, so overstretched. They're having to run their marriages, their families, their careers, their houses. And so anything that's like a little bit of a trick that makes it a little bit more of a pleasure, a little bit easier, gives you a nice little moment at home where you feel you look back at something you've created and feel good about it, um, is, is to be encouraged, I think, and to be shared. Sally, speaking of pleasure, talk to me about uh, what you call maintenance sex. <laughs> so I th- I think ideally I think ideally in a relationship you should be having sex with some frequency or you should have be having having some kind of physical intimacy frequently. I'm not talking about situations where someone is ill or someone is postpartum. Those things come along and of course we take a break according to our own needs and our our, our bodies. But for the most part you need to be as I would say checking in. <laughs> quite regularly. Um, And I think the problem that lots of us have is that we're in that kind of date night culture where it's like, oh, we have to go, you know, we have to clear an evening, we have to go on a date night, we have to dress up, we have to act like we've just met and then we'll have this amazing sex. And I just can't think like that. I actually don't enjoy things like that. First of all, I never want to have sex if I've just had a massive meal. I want to put the telly on. So (laughs) I think that setting ourselves up for a romantic moment is very often the thing that stops us having sex because nobody has really time for those moments and it's really more about keeping a connection it's about maintaining a physical connection with somebody which let's face it stops you murdering them like you know if you if you don't have if you're living with somebody who you didn't give birth to if you're not having some kind of physical intimacy they're just a flatmate and then they're really 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 annoying and so you're not really gonna throttle somebody for not loading the dishwasher if you had sex a few hours ago you're gonna let it fly for the most part and I think it just gives you especially when you've got children it just gives you a connection to have a connection that has nothing to do with the kids is important I think and that you are a gang, that the two of you are a gang, like your kids are a gang with each other and like the four of you or the five of you or the six of you are a gang with each other. You need something that's just about you two. And I think just making the time, even if you literally have to schedule it, making the time to check in physically with your partner is really, really worthwhile. It's like the oil to the engine of the relationship. And have you any tips for people who've let it go too long and are wondering how to get it back? And it's so hard, isn't it? And I think most people have been in that situation, whether it's been in a bad relationship or a good relationship. I think the most important thing is that you touch each other. So like when you're in the room and you're watching TV, is somebody's hand on your knee? Have you got your hand on somebody's knee? I think just making sure that you're touching regularly is so important because the thing that's really hard to get back is when two bodies are not touching each other regularly you know you can get through periods without sex if you just had a baby or someone's you know struggling with depression or something like that you can get through those periods if you're holding hands you're having cuddles you're lying next to each other to watch tv you're going out for walks together and cuddling up you're cuddling up in bed i think when people stop touching each other it can very often be terminal Mm. 
Um, I want to talk to you about estrangement as well, because through this book, you mentioned various parts of your own experience. And, and we are used to you talking about beauty and perhaps not sharing as much about your personal life. So I'm sure that was a, a bit of a new thing for you, perhaps. But you write very movingly about being estranged from your own mother and sort of how we don't talk very much about mother daughter relationships that don't work out that aren't good and I was just thinking about Harry and William as well I know it's a bit of a jump but just generally families that don't get on or or family relations it was it important to put that in it was important to me because I I run a Facebook group called necessary family estrangement which is um has got thousands of people in it who've made the very difficult decision to estrange themselves from a close family member I started that group because of Megan Harry's wife. So when she first, well, just after their marriage, she estranged, it became apparent she'd estranged from her father, who, quite frankly, his behaviour is so atrocious, I don't blame her. Um, the, I, I ended up being commissioned a lot to write about that because of my own estrangement. And I was so appalled by the way people were talking about it. And while I was being appalled by how people were talking about it, about it, I was also getting loads and loads of people contacting me and saying, oh my God, thank you so much. I really, really, really struggle um, by the combative nature of people when they talk to me about my own estrangement. And so I started a group on, on that basis and people share their stories reassure one another and essentially I think what people get wrong about estrangement I mean first of all when it comes to Megan nobody has the slightest clue uh, for their motivations and you have to respect and trust that you do not set fire to your relationships unless lots and lots and lots has gone on that feels insurmountable. Um, I I support Harry. I, I see Harry and William, in fact, and all I see is those two little boys behind a coffin, not getting a cat. That's all I see when I look at both of them. I think they are broken and they are both dealing with that in the way that each of them thinks is the correct way. And they're going about it in a flawed manner. But from where I'm sitting, Harry has left a situation that broke him and he can't stop talking because it's feeling it's making him feel healed in some way. And I think it will die off. I think it'll calm down. Um, but all I see when I look at those two men is sadness and, and a system that uh, that has failed them. And one of them has escaped that system and is feeling like a new person and wants to share his story, having not been allowed to talk about anything for his entire life. In terms of more generally about estrangement, what people say to you is they'll say, oh, but you only have one mother. And you say, yes, I know. I know. And it's really upsetting. And they say, oh, you'll be gutted when she dies, though. And you say, yeah, I, I will be. I will be really gutted when she dies. And oh, nothing is that bad as though there's been an argument and you, you're having a stop. You know, you've, you're having a stop and you've stormed off. You know that your estranged family member is going to die and you don't want them to die. And in many cases, you still love them. You don't feel any happiness that you don't have that person in your life. However, what's happened is you've decided over the course of many years that for the first time, your life has to take priority over one relationship that negatively impacts everything else in your life. And it's basically a weighing scales. And you spend your whole life thinking, uh, no, no, I have to do this. I have to get through this. I have to try and fix this because that's my job as a daughter or that's my job as a family member. 
and you get to a point where you realise that's not possible and you realise that your life can't begin, you can't do justice and honour to your own life without removing the distraction and the constant chaos of that relationship from it. And that's what happens. It's not a strop. It's not the beginning of a big old grump. It's the end of a really long process. When you decide to estrange, it's the end of something that has been so painful and so disruptive for so long. And you just need a bit of peace and quiet. Yeah, And I really think it's great that you're saying it and writing about it because people sometimes just don't understand it, who aren't in that situation. They just don't get that, that, that kind of continuum that has happened to lead to that point. And I'm happy for them. You know, I, I meet people who don't understand and I'm so <laughs> happy for them. You know, I see people who are so close to their mothers and, or their dads and I love it. You know, I don't feel funny about their relationships. I find absolute joy in them. So I just wish that people would accept, would understand what they don't know and just be compassionate towards people who have a very different life Which, Which is a great advice across a number of different areas. Now, we're going to have to wrap it up in a moment. Um, this book has everything from how to stop buying jeans that don't fit, how to have conversations <laughs> about money with your partner, how bad boys are really not worth the hassle that they cause. There's so much in how everything is washable, which is also the title of the book, which is very important. Um, oh, everything is washable with an asterisk, not, not everything, <laughs> but you know, most things. Um, but I wanted to ask you about something topical because you have very good stuff in there about tiny acts of um, self-care in terms of mental health, but also about the January blues. This particular time we're, we're in now is very difficult for a lot of people. A lot of people don't like it. Could we finish with maybe some some advice for people who who struggle at this time of year with, with the whole January-ness of it all? Well, I don't know what the weather's like in Ireland, but it is rotten. It is rotten <laughs> it's been pretty miserable. over here. It's absolutely rotten, grey and drizzly. That contributes. Everybody's broke usually in January. People have had to spend all the money on their kids or whatever in at Christmas time. And they don't have much going on. Plus, plus, you've got the cost of living crisis and everyone's worried. My advice would be to say, first of all, the best television of the year is on in January. The channels know this. All the good dramas, Happy Valley, things like that, Stonehouse, you know, all those dramas have been really, really good just hunker down watch some telly but also invite people you love round to watch telly with you or go round to their house to watch telly doesn't cost any money but to be surrounded by people who make you laugh who are funny who laugh at your jokes who share things with you go through it together you don't need to spend a penny you can still hunker down at home but just make it their home or have them round to you mm. and you also talk about that just widening it out group activities if you don't want to go for telly go for a walk with a group of people or that sense yeah. of getting people together but it's not about spending money is a really nice idea yeah and cup of tea walk you know dog walk uh, round to each other's houses those sorts of things cost no money and actually we all know that when you have a brilliant night out with your pals however much money you spend what's the thing you remember you remember having the laugh with your friends that's the bit that matters that's the valuable bit don't need to be spending money on food drink and all of that you just need to see your pals so just make sure you see them in any way you can and I just want to ask you quickly about Beauty Bank because you set up this amazing organisation to help people without as many resources to be able to have those basics like shampoo, beauty items. How is it going? It's It's gone from strength to strength, really, hasn't it? It's funny because it's, it's with pride and with a heavy heart that I just say we've had our biggest year ever. You know, I, I would like us not to exist. Um, 
distributing hygiene essentials to people living in poverty is something we take seriously and want to do well, but at the same time wish we didn't have to at all. So it's with mixed feelings that I say we've had our kind of best year in inverted commas in terms of we have um, increased our reach. We are now regularly helping over 400 charities um, across the UK um, with their hygiene products. So whether it's toothpaste, toothbrushes, uh, soap, shampoo, that kind of thing to, to men, women and children uh, living on very, very little, which at the moment, uh, that number is growing hugely. Um, and I'm hoping I'm going to have some news for you as well. Really? Because I was going to say, we just year. have had, um, as you guys have as well, a, a, a huge influx of refugees here too, living in quite, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, impoverished circumstances. And I mean, I was just so notice of a great local organisation that's asking for products for textured hair. And there's, there's mm-hmm. brands I found in Boots called Twisted Sister who, who mm-hmm. do that. So I went and bought some and dropped it down. But uh, yes, well, if the Beauty Bank was coming to Ireland now, that would be... Yeah, um, very exciting. Yeah, we we do lots of that. Care for Calais is a charity we help a lot in this country, um, and yeah, lots of things. You know, people of colour turn up and their skin is so dry in this weather. Suddenly, you know, so there are special things that have to be uh, sent to them. But yes, I'm hoping I do have some Irish news. Um, your listeners are probably familiar with my friend Jennifer Rock from Skin Gradient. Yes. Jennifer and I are just like having a little conversation okay. about 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 what we might what we might be able to accomplish. Um, and so I'll be coming over in the next few months to see Jennifer to talk about that some more. And, I, and uh, Rasheen, you know, you will be the first person I tell. Well, when thank I know, you very much. I know it, would, more. it would be lovely to have you both on the podcast, actually. And maybe when you're over, if you, when you finalise things, we could we could get that together. Sally, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I can't overstate how brilliant the book is and how I am going to buy like probably 20 copies now and give them to everybody. And I really, <laughs> I really do feel I wish I'd had it a long time ago. But even now in my 51st, year I am finding it useful and I'll have it by my bed and I'll flick through it and if anyone asks me any questions I might not have the answer but I know you will and I'll look at the index at the (laughs) back and I'll get your answer and try the steamed eggs because they really do work I mean, I, literally, you don't have to ask me twice. I'm on it, like a car bonnet, <laughs> tomorrow. And I'm going to report back. But thank you for having me. And thank you to the Irish listeners. My Irish audience is my most supportive um, and, and vocal and helpful audience. I absolutely love my Irish readers. Really? You know I do. I've said this to you yeah. so many times. But my Irish readers are just the absolute best. I love them. So um, thank you so much if you've bought the book or if you're going to buy the book. Well, I'm sure there's lots of people going to buy the book after this. And thank you very much, Sally Hughes. Thank you, Rasheen. That was Sally Hughes there. And her book is called Everything is Washable and Other Life Lessons. And it contains so much more that we couldn't get to. And I really recommend you buy it and read it. That's it for me. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan, Aideen Finnegan and me, Roshi Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Please do get in touch with us. We're on Twitter and Instagram at IT Women's Podcast. Or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.